Hello, everyone, and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Querians Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah Brown, she, her, and this week I am joined by Sam, he, him, Richard, he, him, Gabby, she, her, who make up the Queer Health Podcast. And the Queer Health Podcast is about a power-sharing project of the end goal to expand autonomy by bringing health knowledge directly to sexual and gender minority communities. They do it by taking your health questions, place them in conversation with the latest scientific evidence and expert advice. They don't always have all the answers, but you know what? They try. And I learned a lot on this week's episode, and I really hope you do too. You know, especially... These days, you know, we are, we didn't just, we're still going through this pandemic. Healthcare has been a really hot topic lately. And, you know, for me and a lot of people I know, we're always trying to find doctors that are safe for us, specifically queer doctors or queer friendly doctors. I can't tell you how many times I have typed that sentence into Google, looking for people who will understand my personal needs as a queer woman and will know how to treat me and how to take care of me. And I think that's all we really want. And that's all anybody wants, whether you're a part of the LGBT, LGBTQIA plus community or not. We all just want to know that our doctors are going to understand us if we're in pain or are having trouble. And a lot of times that's not always the case. So we in this community turn to people like us who will keep us safe and understand us. And we talk a lot about that today and the different issues that the queer community faces when it comes to health. And, you know, we didn't always learn a lot of this in school. A lot of it was very heteronormative, a lot of toxic, traumatic filled healthcare education that is deeply rooted in racism and misogyny that is still there today. So today we're all about open and honest discussions about healthcare. And I hope when you listen to this episode, you're able to be more open and honest with your healthcare professional, or it inspires you to maybe find someone who can better understand you. We'll have all the links below for queer health podcasts and side note they're all real doctors so if you want to make an appointment with them we'll link that below and they also give a ton of resources for people who can find queer doctors and people who will better understand our health care needs so i hope you enjoy this week's episode of the querience and remember it's our lives it's an experience it's the querience enjoy um, well, happy Pride, everyone. Happy end of Pride. I hope you all were safe and had a good time. Um, so, yeah. So welcome, Queer Health. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for taking time and energy to talk with me today. Uh, I know it's very hot outside. I know it's been a crazy time for everyone. So, like, I'm so glad we're able to heal a little bit and, you know, get vaccinated. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, so I really just want to start off with asking, how did this come about um, with queer health? What makes queer health, I guess, different? So I actually would say this wheel was in, like uh, triply uh, invented independently. Um, and I think when we all mentioned this to each other, it was like, yes, I've been thinking about that. Um, I think we, we all see queer health as something uh, that we you know, used to, you know, help our patients. A lot of patients experience it on their own and that this is something 
a lot of people have experience with, but as healthcare providers, we want to, you know, we're interested in not only like making more knowledge about what queer health should look like or what the best practice is, but also making sure people know it. Um, mm-hmm. And while we do that in a clinical or research space, we, you know, I think are all excited enough to want to like take it out of that space and a podcast um, um, either we're familiar with as consumers. Uh, Gabby's been on the production side of other medical podcasts as well. So um, I think that's sort of how we all arrived uh, in this in this humid room together. Yeah, and I think there's activism in being able to uh, help queer folks be able to advocate for themselves in healthcare spaces, right? Like letting people stand up and say, actually, I think this is what we're supposed to be doing if they're not getting the care that they need is really important as part of my mission. And so I think we all share that and wanted to provide folks in our community with that information from, from an insider's view. Podcasts being like a great medium for that because they a lot of people use them as an auto a form of autodidactics, right? Um, and I think they've gained some traction in the medical community as a way to take the reins of your own learning um, and find the information you want to find on certain subjects. And I think um, it dovetails nicely with sort of what the overall mission and the framing that we have for this podcast, which is trying to find a way to power share information with folks about their health and about how they might be able to improve interactions with healthcare for themselves. Mm-hmm. And what do you think is the biggest issue that you face as healthcare providers within the queer community? There's, so I guess I guess the thread that I'll start to pull out is that, you know, one of the genders of starting the podcast was that every time I encounter new folks in the queer community, and I talk about what I do as a, as a healthcare provider who works with LGBTQ people, everyone suddenly wants to become a patient. Whether they started interacting with me in a flirtatious way or whether they started interacting with me in a professional way, I have people who I was like on panels with who were like, oh, you're a primary care doctor, can I be your patient? And then suddenly there's this like, I don't, I don't get to have a social life in our community because everyone suddenly wants to be a patient. And also, this is a mission of mine. It's part of my identity, and it's part of who I want to be. And so there's this wonderful synergy in that. But also, it can be draining uh, just to always sort of be on and be everyone's reference for how this should go and what kinds of things should I know because I speak in plain language and I speak in a language that is familiar to folks in our community. Oh, yeah. Bandwidth being, like, I think a big takeaway too, right? So there are lots of folks, I think, who are interested in developing either competency or a real skill set, right? Um, both are important and play different roles within healthcare. Um, but the bandwidth to teach that back and teach that out, um, and that number is growing, and I think growing in a really exciting way. Um, as a trainee, I, I find that to be really invigorating to see the number of people who embrace queer health uh, in many different aspects of their practice. Um, but I think uh, to Richard's point, it's a developing field and that comes with growing things. And this is a way to amplify our scale, right? And get that message out to people while also having like wonderful boundaries about it, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, queer health is such an umbrella term, uh, especially the word queer, obviously, but um, you know, uh, unfortunately, and prominently this month, um, there's been a lot of anti-trans health bills where providers can turn trans folks away. Um, As healthcare providers, when you see this happening, I mean, you just said, you know, every time you mention you're a queer doctor, patients flood to you. And that kind of speaks to the environment that we're living in today when there is so much discrimination, which 
within the healthcare industry, how do people reconcile with that, that there are doctors out there who, you know, they've taken the Hippocratic oath, they've, they're supposed to heal people and you turn people away for being themselves. And from a practical standpoint, the folks, the doctors who are going to, who are going to invoke the right to refuse care, we're probably never going to provide it for the first place. Um, you know, it's always certainly alarming as a medical provider to see anything medical become a wedge issue. I think we're all used to abortion being that. Um, and I mm-hmm. think it's sort of, you know, and lesbian marriage, you know, the fight moved to bathrooms around trans folks has now moved to healthcare spaces is certainly an alarming trend. Um, if not for practical reasons, certainly for rhetorical ones. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I do, it's hard it's hard to defend. I don't know. I defer to Richard as an educator because I think a lot of that is not something you can make a policy around, but you have to sort of like really change someone's heart and mind about, mm-hmm. especially as a medical provider. Yeah. I mean, I agree with all of what you just said. I think that um, it's something that the, uh, the right is really focusing on as a lightning rod to really, because, because because unfortunately our community and particularly the trans folks in our community like in some spaces in our country still don't have much of a voice and so it's easy to target them and easy to make that a wedge issue when Mm -hmm. all of the data in healthcare speaks to providing hormones providing access to gender affirming care saves lives right like and that's Mm -hmm. what we're trying to do the idea that as a healthcare provider you could see someone whose life was in danger and just walk away because you didn't like something about them or because I think your religion speaks about them in a way, which is absolutely 100% false, like mm-hmm. it's third. Um, and a lot of that has to do with fear. And that's the other piece of what we hope our podcast will do is um, we have healthcare providers who listen to our podcast to hear sort of practical advice that people want to know. And when we talk, and I want to I want to sort of name this, that you mentioned mm-hmm. how broad queer health is a couple of times. And, the, and, and I'm absolutely in agreement with you about that. And so the podcast isn't just focused on vaccines and testing, right? It's focused mm-hmm. on the, our overall health. And so our mental health and our sexual health and our, you know, like all of those things are so important and fall under the umbrella of your health. And mm-hmm. when your folks go to doctors, right? Like a, a, a young trans woman in the middle of the country who's going to someone who may have a religious objection to treating her, um, isn't going just to get hormones, but it's going to be affirmed and to be able to develop into the woman that she's going to be mm-hmm. and needs that kind of health support from a healthcare provider. And it's not just about whether someone will prescribe the hormones or not, but to Sam's point, like those people probably weren't providing the care that was necessary to begin with, whether they were giving hormones or not. Um, mm-hmm. That's a really important point. My oh, hope- yeah my hope to step back is like broadly I hope it backfires on the right and the same way like there I forget the name of the book that just came out that said like the queer community never would have cared about marriage if the right hadn't cared about marriage um and like said like you can't marry and people are like okay well then we'll try for that like I'm hoping that in the long run I don't certainly I'm not happy to see anyone suffer for barriers to care and the violence that this sort of language causes but mm-hmm. hopefully <laughs> hopefully in putting a focus on this issue it, it ultimately will get resolved uh I don't it's not the best way to focus on it but my hope is that that's hopefully historically and quickly that's what happens I mean I hope so too I hope everything backfires on the right personally <laughs> I hope uh 
hope a lot of things happen to them. And I'm going to say that freely because I don't really welcome any Trump supporters as my listeners. So, you know, um, yeah, well, yeah, I think in as a whole, as queer people, we just want to feel safe. And like, when we're looking for healthcare providers, you know, I'll even as from down to like a therapist, we're always typing into Google queer friendly so-and-so, queer friendly OBGYN and like Planned Parenthood is like the number one thing that comes up and, you know, they're getting like defunded as we speak every day. So, you know, a lot of times we just want a checkup. We just want to know that we're healthy, just like everybody else. But, and especially like, you know, if you're trans, if you're going through hormones or anything like that you want someone who will understand and you want someone who will say like hey like you're safe here um and with all of you know the deep-rooted racism in the medical industry and the deep-rooted issues it's so so important that you know we're all feeling safe uh when we're getting medical care that's so important um and like i do it too when like I was even looking down to like, I don't know, a primary care physician. I was like, who's going to be, who's going to be okay with me saying, you know, I only have sex with women or I'm only doing this. And like, you know, that's a big thing. Um, So what I would love to ask, you know, when uh, people are looking for a medical provider and they're queer, what are some advice that you can give people uh, to know like the do's and don'ts of when you're looking for someone to give care when you guys aren't available, of course. I know you're the first choice. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So this is a great question and it comes up all the time. I think Mm -hmm. uh, finding the right community or first of all, word of mouth is everything, right? Oh yeah. People who share your identities within your community or you tell you about people like those are the people to go find. They're usually the people who are also quite booked. Um, mm-hmm. I think uh, so. Glamma is an organization that has a provider finder, uh, so you can go to uh, glma.org. Um, the name of the organization is Glamma Health Professionals Advancing LGBT Equality, um, but it's glamma.org. Uh, there's also WPATH, which is the World Professional Association of Transgender Health, um, and they have provider members who are worth looking into for folks. And then social media is the other place that people will often really go to, right? Will say like, oh, I just moved to this area, like who has a good healthcare provider that they can recommend or something like that. Um, and I think those are the way to do it. I think also one one thing that has become a thread in the many, as part of our podcast structure, we always have a community voice who isn't a healthcare expert as in speaking on their particular health expertise. Sometimes we have done mm-hmm. in the health system when to be community voices um, and share from their lived experiences. And when many of these individuals have spoken about uh, moments of the, where they've clicked with their healthcare providers or they haven't, right? Uh, mm-hmm. The common theme is trusting your gut. So sometimes you meet a provider who you wouldn't expect to be affirming for you and they're able to meet those needs and you're able to have a conversation about how they can meet those needs for you. And sometimes someone fits the bill and they're decked out in a rainbow coat instead of a white coat. And they're just not the person for you, right? Chemistry is everything. Um, And having a space where you, you know, in an ideal world, of course, feel comfortable voicing what you need from a healthcare provider and where a healthcare provider invites that and in fact, actively includes that in their practice. You know, I I think often we, as queer folks, as, as patients are made to feel that 
our needs and our feelings about things aren't the most important thing in a healthcare space when actually that's all, what it's all about, right? Uh, and so I think um, just letting folks know that they have a lot more expertise in this, I think that sometimes uh, they, they're made out to. Oh, if any of my doctors showed up in a rainbow pride flag coat, I would tell all my friends. I would be like, we're all switching doctors to this person. Like, anyone that- I'll make it happen. Great. Amazing. I wish my primary care doctor who probably isn't listening, but I wish they would wear a rainbow coat. That'd be amazing. Oh my God. <laughs> yes. Sponsorships. Oh man. If that, what's the, um, is it figs? Is yeah. that the scrubs? If they should just, you know, make it rainbow, make pride flag things. So these the- are my- the very attractive person in the pigs ad for pride is someone who actually went to med school with these folks. Like he's someone that we know and he's fabulous. He's a wonderful human. Oh my God. I love that. Yeah. That's amazing. So in, in spite of some not great moves recently, they made that move. That was really good. Yeah. Yeah. Now donate to the communities next fix. Yeah, Let's exactly. take the next step. Um, so this has been a discussion on the podcast before, but um, how does sex ed fit into queer health? Because that's always a big thing, uh, especially in our community when we want someone to be comfortable or whatever. But uh, how do you think that fits into this whole genre? Do you, th- I mean, it's obviously just a part of regular health, but. Paging Dr. Katzman, right? Uh, we have a colleague who uh, is an adolescent health specialist and who, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know if these, if, if these guys saw it, but um, she gave a presentation on uh, the gender politics of, of sex education in school, and it was just amazing. And it focused on, so, you know, when we talk about white supremacy culture and we talk about intersectionality, and we talk about the fact that we all need to organize together because organizing in silos doesn't work. The Mm -hmm. idea of the way sex ed is traditionally taught in schools is absolutely about controlling people of different genders and sexualities because Mm -hmm. the information that is disseminated makes so many assumptions so often uh, that the only kind of education that's available to people protects people who have majoritized identity and effectively the people who sit in the room deciding what content goes into sex ed and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so right away, when it comes to reproductive freedom, when it comes to bodily autonomy, we learn all of those lessons in sex education so early that we are immediately outsiders, whether mm-hmm. it's about your gender, whether it's because you identify as a woman, whether it's because you identify as non-binary, whether it's because your parts, uh, the, the body parts that you have don't match what the curriculum says should be the sex that you're having, right? Mm-hmm. All of those things serve to sort of remove your autonomy and remove you from the conversation in a way that from that young, you have to fight your way back into that conversation. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Oh yeah. And it's so important to teach kids these things when they're young. You know, uh, I got taught sex ed when I was in fifth grade, but it was like, here's a pad. This is what a (laughs) penis looks like. (laughs) Like we'd have to take out an orange and see how that compared to like health or whatever. Um, So there wasn't a lot of, you know, as you said, it's very rooted in white supremacy and heteronormative, you know, ideologies. And I hope we can change that. Uh, I think that's so, so important because people don't realize, you know, sex ed is everything. Sex ed is, yeah. 
Exactly. And we have colleagues who are pediatricians and adolescent medicine providers who are doing that work and who are there mm -hmm. for the queer youth, like to be able to provide them with that kind of space so that as they grow and develop, the questions that they have about their bodies and their, and their sexuality can be answered in ways that are affirming and that take into account their whole selves instead of just individual questions handled in, handled in awkward ways. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. The common thread, right, between sexual health writ large and then queer health as it relates to sexual health is affirmation and pleasure, right? In mm -hmm. both of those settings, and I think we talk about this a lot with uh, Jessica Hallam on one of our episodes about queer women's sexual health and, and specifically with respect to sexual satisfaction, right? It's about centering joy, ecstasy, and pleasure in an affirming way. And mm -hmm. the beauty of being in queer health is that you get to do that for all patients, right? So you get good at that because it's an absolute sort of foundational part of being a affirming and inclusive healthcare provider for queer folks. But then you become really good at it for other patients and you see how much joy can bring them, whether they're identified as part of the community or not. And I think it really, to me, has highlighted how important it is for all patients, for us to revamp how we think about sexual health, sexual satisfaction, from the age of fifth grade onwards, right? And I'll echo my, you know, my class, my sex ed class is called puberty. Like that is a horrible name for a sex ed class. <laughs> right? Right? Like why? Oh God. Oh God. And they would separate the peep, the men and the women. They would separate the men and the women. Quotation marks. Yeah. Like, oh yeah. Very triggering. Very traumatic. Like very damaging to youth. I mean, I don't, I don't know how much else I remember from fifth grade, but the fact that I remember the name of the class says everything, right? <laughs> oh yeah. We were, I think it was just like sex ed. I think that's what we called it. And then like, uh, in middle school, it was combined in middle school. We had, but I think we learned more about drugs than we did about health. They were like, we need to teach you that smoking pot is bad because, you know, here we are. Um, and how much do you really need to teach that, right? Like that's- Yeah, exactly. Being a healthcare provider is that we get to ask those questions, right? So like for youth, there may be issues with smoking weed, but like mm -hmm. as a grown-up, if you smoke weed and that's not something that's getting in your way, like I don't have to jump up and down about that. Right. Like yeah. have a reasonable conversation about what your drug use looks like. We can mm -hmm. talk about reasonable ways for you to, you know, meet your goals about that. Like if cutting down mm -hmm. is a goal that you have or that, you know, it's getting in your way, then we can talk about that. And if you're an occasional weed smoker, like, okay, maybe edibles more than smoking, but let's talk about that. Right. Yeah, exactly. Being safe is the number one thing. And yeah. um there is a organization called Queer Appalachia, and they talk about um, and advocate for uh, LGBTQIA plus folks uh, closer to the Appalachia area. And a term that I learned from them was harm reduction mm -hmm. and how in the healthcare industry, um, they don't really talk about that a lot and how like, you know, in the queer community were at high risk for drug abuse, you know, these things. And even in my last neighborhood in Washington Heights, I would see, you know, safe injection sites and things like that for people who, you know, may be using drugs that require that. But that's also not talked about enough. You know, when we're learning about drug use, uh, what is like the safe way? Like we know weed, like you can't quote unquote overdose on it. I mean, I'm sure people will debate that, but you know, it's 
one of the safer drugs, I think, as opposed to something stronger like heroin or like Coke, you know, when you're doing things in an unsafe way, that can become an issue. But I feel like that's not talked about enough is like, what is safe for us? And and everything in life is about, everything in healthcare is about harm reduction, right? It's, Mm -hmm. I'm going to offer you this pill to lower your cholesterol because it could help prevent a heart attack, right? So we have, Mm -hmm. but you know, no one out there believes that a donut is healthy, but most people eat donuts. <laughs> right? I so think like donuts are healthy. Pleasure, right? If it's good for pleasure and it makes you feel good, right? Some people yeah. are going to eat donuts and some people are going to eat a lot of donuts. And then we'll have yes. to talk about like, how do we eat a couple fewer donuts if that's a problem for you? Um, but like, that's where we get into this conversation is food and social relationships and all of these things come with some degree of harm reduction. Um, and you know, there's not one, everyone wants there to be one simple answer. Like you should do this. You shouldn't do that. And it's not about shoulds. It's about like, how do we get you to where you want to go? And I think it's worth saying, and I'm, I'm very heavily, uh, leaning on Dr. Katie Duffy, who was on one of our most recent podcasts. Um, she talks about how the medical guidelines don't incorporate harm reduction, right? It's a binary. Binaries are harmful in so many ways. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and so, oh yeah. It's either you get your, you know, your cancer screening, and, and there's so many cancer screenings we offer folks, um, or you don't, and there's no, well, let's talk about what, you know, what if you're not a huge fan of pap smears and you want to space them out more? What does that look like for you? Or let's explore the, you know, second best option for, uh, you know, cold cancer screening. What does that look like for you in terms of convenience, in terms of sensitivity, all of these things? And I think the evidence is out there for that, but it's not in these digestible parcels the way that the ideal guidelines, quote unquote, are. Um, and I think that, again, a, a real benefit to queer health and to being involved in this work is that, again, these things are universal patient principles. Um, and they, mm-hmm. they, it benefits all patients to be thinking about all of their health through the lens of harm reduction. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's all, we're all just trying to be healthy people in the best way we can. Some of us really like donuts. It's a problem, but I only eat like one. <laughs> I see no problems with that. Oh yeah. I, might I, eat donuts. I prefer to eat fewer than more only because I have other goals for my, for the rest of my life. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. I just eat a bagel every day. It's fine. It just <laughs> balance itself out. I can't help it. I love them so much. They're so good. Um, You're the right You're the right yeah, exactly. Yeah. But I use vegan cream cheese, so it cancels it out. So then it's healthy. Yeah, so then it's healthy. We're yeah. taking a holistic picture to bagel health. What? We're taking a holistic picture to bagel health. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, holy to everything. It's amazing. Um, so I do want to switch gears. Um, wait, do we have enough time? Do you have to go? Are you? We have about... 15 minutes. Yeah. yeah. 15 minutes. Okay. Great, 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 great. Let me just see if there's anything I miss. Um, so when we're talking about, you know, the younger generation, um, if they're trans or if they're, you know, seeking hormone therapy, is that what it's called? Is that the correct term? Hormone therapy. Yeah. Hormone therapy. Yeah. So a lot of, and mainly the right wing people are arguing like it could stunt their growth. It could do things like that. And I want to just dispel these myths because that seems to be a really big topic that I've seen a lot online and everything. And I just wanted to 
talk to actual medical experts <laughs> instead of politicians who think they're medical experts um, about, you know, the things that these misconceptions overall. Yeah. So yeah. here's what we know. What yeah. we know is that um, when people go through puberty, hormones uh -huh. impact their body and it impacts the way their bodies develop. Yeah. And, uh, kids identify as trans or non-binary and are uncomfortable with the ways their bodies are developing, mm -hmm. um, then we can give them hormone blockers. We can delay puberty for long enough that they can make a, an informed decision. And what we mm -hmm. want healthcare is to be able to allow someone to make an informed decision about using hormone therapy. Um, and so we can delay puberty. It's sometimes financially more difficult to get approval and all of those kinds of things. We know that if you, so if you have a cisgender female mm -hmm. uh, who takes hormone blockers for a while that, uh, and then goes off them, but doesn't start cross-gender hormones, mm -hmm. uh, then she will likely be a little bit taller and a little bit less muscular than, mm -hmm. uh, or a little bit, uh, no, sorry, taller and uh, have uh, less development of certain um, types of body fat and breast tissue and things mm -hmm. like that than her peers until estrogen kicks in and then she will develop again. So she may be a little bit taller. That's the main thing that we're worried about. If you're on a hormone, and similarly for a cisgender man, if you put him on a, a hormone blocker, uh, he might be a little bit shorter than his peers if he doesn't get testosterone at some point in there a little bit earlier, but not to an appreciable degree. And then if you take away the hormone blocker, uh, the, the what we call endogenous hormones are the hormones that their bodies will produce with the organs that they have will mm -hmm. kick in and they will go through a normal puberty. It will just be delayed. And mm -hmm. so this fear that people have of, oh my God, you know, a trans kid might change their mind. That doesn't really happen. Like there's not data of people being like, oh, I started hormones and then I realized that I was completely wrong and I could have had a VA, right? Like I, <laughs> there was something that was like completely off. Now, the idea that transition is a binary is also false, right? So there are people, there's a term that has been thrown around called detransition or people like have remorse or regret. That's not really what we see, but what we see is that people will start hormone therapy mm -hmm. and at some point in their life, they won't feel quite as affirmed by the hormones that they're on and they'll either stop or they'll switch what hormones they're taking or the doses of it. And that's mm -hmm. all okay. If we think about gender as a binary, then people transition from one gender to the other and, but that's not how we think of it, right? It doesn't make sense to think of it that way. So there's not this like movement of trans people who were like, oh my goodness, I made a mistake. How could the healthcare industrial complex have let me do this, right? Mm -hmm. That's not the narrative that we hear at all. And so from a health perspective, we try to make sure that someone's not on hormone blockers for long enough that they won't develop good bone mass in their adolescent mm -hmm. years, right? Like that's something that we really care about and that we want to get people on the hormone therapy they're going to be on so that they have as much hormones as their peers, regardless of what their gender identity is, right? So if you're taking feminizing hormones, we want to make sure that you're on a reasonable dose of feminizing hormones. If you're taking masculinizing hormones, we want to make sure that the dose you're on is going to protect your bones. It's going to do all of those things. Um, and if you're non-binary and you're on micro doses of, of hormones, we want to make sure that you're not on them for such a long time that they're suppressing enough hormones that you might have bone issues or other kinds of health issues. But there aren't major, like, it's not like people are having heart attacks or cancers or anything that's going to kill you from initiating hormone therapy or initiating hormone blockers. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you all for giving 
taking the time to give me medical advice and to give my community and my listeners medical advice and your knowledge. We all really appreciate it. It's I can't tell you how many times like people have come up to me or me and my friends have talked about, especially like being queer, queer, how hard it is to find healthcare providers that even just understand. It doesn't matter if they're queer or not, just at the base level that they see you as a person who just needs to know, like, you know, the basic things about your health. Um, and so with changing and with health professions education right now, like the more uh, recently someone trained, uh, the better off, like, so I, we believe firmly in a both and model. So I run what's called the Pride Health Center at, for, uh, for Bellevue Hospital. There are six Pride Health Centers around the public city hospital systems that are staffed by mm -hmm. people like me who believe in queer health. But also like, you could go see almost any of the providers at Bellevue and have a really good experience as a primary care provider. And I have like wonderful stories of one of my learners was a resident at the VA in Manhattan and was taking care of a trans woman who recently came out and like wanted to start hormone therapy. And she came to see me for her hormones. And she was like, yeah, that doctor was awesome. She was so affirming. She helped me get through all of this other stuff to understand where I am and that I want to start hormones. And she's not queer herself. She's not mm -hmm. affiliated with a queer health center, but she's someone who like was passionate and cared and like just identified that here was a person who needed her help and she could be affirming. Oh yeah. We all just want to be healthy. We're all human yeah. beings. Uh, so where can we find the queer health podcast? Where can we find all of you plug away? This is your time. Uh, that's my job. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yay. Places you can find us. You can find our, our website, queerhealthpod.com has everything. Mm -hmm. It's kind of our, our hub and we're working on revamping it and giving it more life um, when we find the time in between episodes. But that's yeah. got transcripts. It's got the episodes themselves. Um, it has a contact form, which we really invite anybody to use to reach out to us. I think you use the contact form to reach out to us. We do respond to it. Um, and it's a way for anyone to give us thoughts on an episode. We're really interested in feedback, but also to give us ideas for future episodes because we really want this to be community driven. And if folks are interested in appearing on the podcast and sharing their stories, if we can find a way to fit you in and find a way for your story to coalesce with one of our topics that we're planning and we don't have someone booked, we'd love to hear from you. Um, so that's one place. Um, we also have uh, Instagram and Twitter. It's also at Queer Health Pod for both of those. Um, and the website has our individual Twitter bios and those are professional Twitters and we use them to uh, commune with the medical Twitter community and with uh, people who listen to our podcast. Amazing. And we're on Apple, we're on Spotify. If you listen to us, like and subscribe because we're we're trying to get the word out realistically like i know that's the mantra of all people who do uh, oh yeah podcasts and media but i think in this case the the answer is one like and one subscribe uh really means that someone else may discover our podcast who may not have previously had access to it um so that mm -hmm. it's activist work you can pat yourself on the back for the day <laughs> oh yeah i know people who would be very very interested in coming on your podcast so i will tell them uh 100 even the podcasts that i edit on the side they will definitely be interested in having y'all on for real so Amazing. We will hook it up and make it happen because this is so, so important information. Like I can't stress enough, like how much uneducationness swirls around this community like wildfire. I'm sure you know. Yeah. Well, and, and where's the formal place that we get it, right? If we don't get it, yeah. in school, I'm like, you know, there's a lot of myths and rumors out there. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. 100%. Well, thank you again so, so much for coming on. Uh, yeah. I hope you have an easy, non-stressful day. I hope you're in some sort of AC today a little bit. It's a little loud. We just turned it off. So when we get off the call, we're turning it back on. So, yes. Yeah. Do that. Do that. Yes. Hope you're close to your next donut. Yeah. Oh God. I hope. There's actually a donut place that's like two blocks from me. So I'm very close. We're all about that. <laughs> all right. I'll talk to you later. Thank you so much. Have a great Bye. night. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. All right, everyone. Well, that's it for this week's episode of the Queerians podcast. Once again, I'm Sarah Brown, your host, she, her. I really hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I hope you learned something about health in general. I hope this gave you maybe the confidence to Ask the tough questions to your doctors and really advocate for yourself because a lot of times in these environments, we're our only advocates when other people won't do it for us. So I will link all the resources we mentioned in this week's episode in the description box below. If you're looking for a doctor, feel free to check them out. Send them to your friends. Uh, Let's all help each other out and get healthier, you know, mentally or physically, whichever one you choose. It's been a really, really long two years and we all really need to look out for each other and take care of ourselves most importantly. So I hope you have a great day. I hope you learned something. Hope you felt something. And once again, remember, it's our lives, it's an experience, it's the Queerians. Bye!